Have you ever longed to don the armor of a samurai and charge headlong into glorious battle? Well, I can't help you with that. However, I can offer you a themed t-shirt that will probably serve as a conversation starter with every third person or so. Check out the merch store at ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com for exclusive shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, phone cases, and full-length battle-ready katanas. Just kidding about that last one. Again, I can't help you there. Visit ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com today. Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 3, Episode 11, The Rise of the Tang Dynasty. Last time, we explored the rise and fall of the Sui Dynasty. Although there are numerous factors that led to their downfall, a critical factor I mentioned was the alienation of the steppe groups like the Shanbei, who now lived within China's borders in the north. While firmly reinstituting the education and examination system helped to mollify the Confucian factions among the Han aristocracy, it convinced the nomads that they were better off on their own. They proceeded to ignore orders to assist in the various invasions of Koguryo, and those adventures ended in abject embarrassment and defeat for the Sui dynasty. After the assassination of Emperor Yang, a struggle ensued for control of the kingdom, and a man named Li Yuan emerged triumphant. As governor of a region in northern China, Li Yuan had gained practical experience on the battlefield, fending off aggression from the Goturk Khaganate, and likewise learned how best to govern Shanbei and other steppe peoples within his domain. His father was the Duke of Tang, a title which Li Yuan had inherited, hence the name of the dynasty, and his mother was from the Dugu tribe of the Xianbei, a tribe well known for its military prowess. There are rare moments in history when in the face of serious, difficult challenges, the exact right person is chosen to face them. It's hard not to conclude that this is one of those times, as Li Yuan's mixed heritage and experience made him nearly the perfect candidate to reinforce China's unification. Crowned Emperor Gaozi, he began by rolling back a number of the divisive reforms of the late Emperor Yang, especially making accommodations for Shanbei nobility regarding the education and examination system, and thus winning their enthusiastic support. His ministers went straight to work on the imperial propaganda, producing genealogies which included such luminary Chinese ancestors as poet and patriarch of Taoism Lao Tzu, a famous general from the Han dynasty named Li Guang, and the founder of the Western Liang dynasty, Li Gao. As a side note, you might remember that the first emperor of the Han dynasty likewise changed his name to Gaozi. The name means great founder and is therefore a common name among founding emperors. After four years of waging war against rival claimants, usually descendants of one of the many dynasties that dotted China's landscape throughout the 500s, Emperor Gaozi emerged triumphant. 
he established his capital at the northwestern city of Chang'an, which would remain the center of Chinese power for almost 300 years. Emperor Gaoza was a competent leader, but plagued by ambitious sons who engaged in plots against one another and, eventually, against the emperor himself. His son Li Ximin, after killing his brother Li Yuanji, stormed the royal palace and demanded that his father name him the crown prince. Emperor Gaoza agreed and retired shortly thereafter. The eight-year reign of the Tang Dynasty's first emperor was no doubt something of a welcome reprieve for Koguryo, who, although they had successfully defended their land from the Sui and Goturk incursions, remained exhausted politically and militarily from the war effort. They would indeed receive a much longer hiatus between wars with China, but this peace would not last forever. The early 600s was a contentious time for the peninsular powers, as the deadly rivalry between Baekje and Silla grew in both frequency and intensity of violent warfare. No doubt emboldened by their newfound friendship with Koguryo, and determined to win back their former lands to the north and east, Baekje launched continuous large-scale raids into Silla territory. Although Baekje made few permanent gains in this period, the continuous looting and the cost of raising an annual army for defense began to wear on Silla's royal treasury. Thus, in 608, the king of Silla sent a letter to one of his subjects, a Buddhist monk studying in China, and asked him to request aid from the Sui dynasty on the king's behalf. While this request certainly gave Emperor Yang a pretense for making war against the Koguryo, there were many other factors in the decision to commit the Sui army to the pacification of the power of northern Korea. We covered how poorly the Sui-Koguryo war went for the Sui dynasty in the last episode. In 618, when the Tang dynasty began to rise after the fall of the Sui, a new king ascended the throne of Koguryo, and for a few years, it appeared as though both factions were on the cusp of making a fresh start. They sent one another gifts, exchanged prisoners, and the Tang dynasty even sent scholars to present the teachings of Taoism, which in turn inspired Koguryo to send their own scholars to China to learn more about philosophy and religion. The 620s were a particularly difficult time for the kingdom of Silla, as Baekje began to follow up their smash-and-grab raids with full-fledged siege warfare and even managed to recapture some of their former territory. Koguryo likewise raided periodically, although by now they had discovered how Baekje had offered to help the Sui dynasty against them, so there was no large-scale strategic coordination between the two powers. The chronicles claim that things became very desperate in Silla by the beginning of the 630s, and that constant war had ravaged their economy so badly that many parents began selling their children into slavery in order to survive. Silla seems to have successfully convinced the Tang dynasty to involve itself in peninsular affairs at least once in 627, wherein Tang diplomats convinced Baekje to cease its relentless assaults, at least for that moment. Baekje, meanwhile, 
was not only trying to keep the Tang Dynasty at bay, but also sending monks, craftspeople, and various Chinese books to the Yamato court. The 630s were an interesting and tumultuous time on the peninsula for many reasons, but especially because of who succeeded King Jinpyong of Silla when he died in 632. Having no sons of his own and no close male relatives, he had initially planned to name the son-in-law married to his eldest daughter as his heir. That daughter discovered the plan before it was set into motion, met with her father in private, and, after convincing him that she would make a worthy successor, he officially made her his heir the year before his death. Queen Seondyok would prove a very popular and well-liked monarch among Silla's common people. According to the Chronicles, shortly after her coronation, she sent royal inspectors throughout her kingdom to organize better systems of care for widows, orphans, and the poor. She ordered a new astronomical observatory to be built in order to better help the farmers perceive the seasons and manage their crops and harvests accordingly. Her people loved her for the compassion that she showed them, and her domestic policies were a smashing success. However, foreign policy was another matter. A woman holding a position of significant authority was not unusual at all in Silla. Queen Seondyok's own grandmother had served as regent over her father, King Jinpyong, for many years, retaining power long after the young king had come of age. Japan, likewise, had more than a few ruling queens in the 600s, but we'll get to them in a later episode. There were still, however, some places in East Asia where it was considered unthinkable to allow a woman to rule. One of those places was Tang Dynasty China. Upon Queen Seondyok's coronation, she followed the usual routine of Silla monarchs and sent a delegation to the Emperor of China to inform him and pay tribute. Emperor Taizong refused to acknowledge Queen Seondyok's legitimacy to the throne, a terrible insult and potential threat to her position. She sent another delegation later in the year, but the result was the same. Most historians believe that part of her motivation in improving the lives of the many disadvantaged members of Silla society was to secure her throne through popularity and thus discourage any ambitious male aristocrats from trying to stage a coup. Just before Queen Seondyok ascended the Silla throne, tensions between Tang China and Koguryo were heating up. In 631, a small Tang army crossed into Koguryo territory and destroyed a local monument dedicated to the Koguryo victory over the Sui dynasty. King Yongyu of Koguryo was alarmed by this aggression and launched a massive defensive building project in response. Over the course of the next 15 years, a series of connected military forts known as the Cheoli Jiangxiong were constructed north of the Liaodong Peninsula. It is at this point that we must introduce one of the most colorful leaders that Koguryo ever produced. Holding the title of Governor of the West and therefore directly overseeing the construction of the defensive wall was a man known as Yeon Gaisomun. 
The descendant of an aristocratic family who regularly held high positions like prime minister within the Koguryo court, Yong Gaisomun believed that war with Tong China was inevitable. While he worked to prepare the nation to help repel an impending invasion, he also took steps to increase his own political power. Two factions were forming within the royal court, one supporting appeasement for the Tang dynasty by paying them tribute and accepting their suzerainty, and the other supporting belligerence toward the Tang and continued Koguryo independence. Meanwhile, in Baikje, King Mu spent the 630s engaged in various construction projects throughout his kingdom, seemingly ignoring for the time any ambitions of annexing more of Silla's land. Among his many endeavors was the Miryuksa Temple, a large complex of buildings made from stone which was, at the time, the largest Buddhist temple in Baikje. Buddhism was gaining more and more popularity among the people of all parts of the Korean peninsula at this time, and so grand gestures from monarchs like this were a good way for the rulers to convince the people that their leaders were righteous and pious people who deserved to be in positions of power. The latter half of the 630s for Silla were a troubling time. Koguryo repeatedly menaced their northern holdings and raided their territory, and the Samguk Sagi even tells of natural disasters like parts of the ocean turning red and the fish in that area dying en masse. Signs like these can signal the end of a monarch's reign if they aren't careful. The goodwill which Queen Seondiok had cultivated through her national welfare programs likely came in handy to convince ambitious nobles that any attempt at overthrow would quickly meet with a popular rebellion. The 640s brought Silla little relief. King Mu of Baikje died, and his son King Weija succeeded him. Not satisfied with great construction projects, King Uija sent emissaries to Koguryo, and by 642, they had worked out an alliance and proceeded to launch coordinated attacks on Silla and much of the western portions were annexed by Baikje. Queen Seondiok once again sent a diplomatic mission to China, and once again the Tang dynasty refused to send aid. Specifically, it is said that Emperor Taizong sent a three-part response. One, that he would send his navy and army to attack Liaodong and invade Baikje. Two, that he would send many thousands of Tang uniforms and flags so that her soldiers could disguise themselves as Chinese soldiers. And three, that he would send one of his male relatives to rule Silla and the queen would retire. The chronicles indicate that the emissary who received this message did not relay it to the queen when he returned which was probably a wise move. In the meantime, the queen decided to consult with Jia Zhang, a well-respected monk who had just returned from studying Buddhism in China. His solution to the problem was, unsurprisingly, a religious one. The great temple Huang Yongsa, which had begun construction almost a hundred years before, was still without a pagoda. While the main halls of the temple are important in Buddhist practice 
for teaching, performing rituals, and meditating, a pagoda is where the relics and sutras are stored, and thus it is the centerpiece of any such complex. Zha Zheng proposed building a very tall pagoda suitable for holding many scriptures and relics, and Queen Siondiok took this suggestion very seriously. When the structure was completed two years later, it was nine stories tall and is widely believed that this made Huang Yongsa the tallest temple in East Asia at the time. Meanwhile, in Koguryo, the court of King Yongnyu had split more firmly into two factions regarding appeasement or resistance to Tang China. The king himself ended up on the side of appeasement, believing that Koguryo would not survive a protracted armed conflict against the might of a unified China. Yeong Gaisomun, for his part, was firmly in the resistance camp, and most of the other leaders within Koguryo's military publicly sided with him. Thus, a plot was hatched by the king and the officials in his court to kill the general, along with the highest-ranking officers who supported him. Regional history may have turned out quite differently had this murder plot remained a secret until it could be executed, but Yong Gaisomun uncovered the conspiracy and decided to make plans of his own. He had recently been promoted to the position of Eastern Governor. What better excuse for a party? The story goes that, in addition to a fair amount of his own loyalists, he invited over a hundred members of the appeasement faction to his party, and then at a predetermined moment, armed men rushed into his palace and murdered the ministers who favored appeasement. Then he marched his troops into Pyongyang, murdered King Yongnyu, and placed the late king's young nephew on the throne, remembered as King Bojang. With Koguryo now firmly in the grip of his military dictatorship, Yong Gaisomun prepared his country for war with China and Silla. If you didn't know the outcome ahead of time, it would be very tempting to look at the situation on the peninsula around 645 and assume that Silla's days were numbered. From a modern perspective, it's easy to assume that Queen Siondiok was wasting her time with building projects when she should be shoring up what little defensive border now remained between herself and her two hostile neighbors. Unfortunately for said hostile neighbors, the tide was about to turn in a big way. Against all precedent and in spite of their prejudice against the queen, the Tang dynasty decided that it could no longer ignore the growing power of Koguryo. So the emperor held his nose and agreed to a military alliance with Silla. The pretext of this war from the Tang point of view was twofold. They were proving themselves a faithful ally of their dear friend, the <clears throat> ruler of Silla, and they were avenging the death of their other dear friend, the late King Yongnyu of Koguryo, by seeking the death of the tyrant Yeong Gaisomun. In 645, the Tang army amassed in the north and prepared to invade Koguryo. In the next episode, we'll continue with the story of the Korean peninsula in the 600s as Koguryo prepares itself for yet another invasion. 
Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan, visit the online store, ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web, ahistoryofjapan.com. Thank you.